Chapter 5 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 5 Angelica the Hermit and the Orc. When Angelica saw that the tide of battle was turning against Charlemagne and his paladins, and that the old Duke Namus was already a prisoner, she lost not a moment in making good her escape. And as she was equally afraid of being captured by either host, and becoming the prize of one of her lovers, Christian or Saracen, she fled to the greenwood, preferring the chances of nature to the chances of love and war. She hoped she might in time find some simple peasant or forester who would guide her to the nearest port and set her on the way to her native land. She marvelled how she could have been so senseless as to follow Rinaldo to France when at the end of her long journey the first sight of him had filled her heart with loathing such as she had never felt for any of the multitude of her lovers. She knew not that the fountain, bewitched by Merlin, had replaced in her heart the excess of love by the excess of disdain. All she knew was that she hated Rinaldo, name and fame, body and soul, with a hatred altogether unmitigated. Deeper and deeper she rode into the forest, ever choosing the most shaded and least trodden path, eager above all things to avoid pursuit. At last, after long riding, she thought she must be far out of reach of her lovers, and especially of him she most hated. She was falling into a daydream of building up again her father's empire and ruling as a virgin queen, when suddenly she heard the steps of a man running in haste, and, lifting her eyes, she saw running towards her on the narrow woodland path she was following, the dreaded form of Rinaldo himself, fully armed with helmet, shield and sword, he ran more lightly through the forest than the half-naked peasant runs in a foot-race. Never did a shepherdess turn her foot more quickly from a serpent than Angelica turned the head of her horse when she saw the warrior coming towards her on foot. She shook the loosened reins and left the horse to find the way. Through thick and thin, regardless of tangled bushes or clinging branches, she fled headlong and by her panting sobs made the animal as fearful as herself. Up and down they wandered, and at last they came on a river. On the bank of the river was Ferrau. Wearied with a long battle and covered with dust and blood, he had come to refresh himself at the stream. And in his eagerness to drink of the water, he had let fall his helmet, and he was trying in vain to recover it from the deep water, when he was suddenly startled by the arrival of Angelica. She came riding towards him, crying for aid at the top of her voice. And well the Saracen knew that voice, and well he knew the face, though it was all white and distorted with terror. Moved by courtesy, and moved also by his love, for he had loved Angelica as much as the rival cousins, he came to her aid as bold and fearless as if he had not lost his helmet. He drew his sword and rushed to meet Rinaldo, and forthwith began a fierce battle and the blows they gave were mighty enough to split an anvil, let alone mailed and plated armour. 
but as soon as they were well set, Angelica again put speed to her palfrey and hurried him at full stretch through the wood. For long the knights fought without result, but at last Rinaldo, being through his enchantment the more desperate lover, spoke to the Spanish knight. If you are fighting for the love of the Princess Angelica, you are fighting against yourself as much as against me. Even if you were to kill me or take me prisoner, still the lady will not be yours, for whilst we are fighting she is fleeing away. Were it not better, if indeed you love her, that you should try to cross her path and make her stay her flight before she has gone farther away? When again the lady is in our power, we can try who is the better man with the sword. The offer of Rinaldo to stay the fight and pursue Angelica pleased Ferrau. In an instant their hatred and anger were buried in oblivion, and the pagan on parting from the river would not let his foeman go on foot, but mounted him behind himself as he might a lady, and they galloped away in pursuit of Angelica. Such was the goodness of heart in the days of chivalry. The two knights were rivals in love. Each hated the other's religion. Both were sore with the blows they had just been showering on one another. And yet they rode away together through the dark woods and by the crooked paths without a thought of any suspicion of treachery. At length they came to a dividing of the path they had followed and they separated, one to the right and the other to the left. And the adventure that befell the moor is a story of itself, but it befell Rinaldo that he again saw in front his steed Bayardo. And it was this famous horse, from which he had dismounted in the great battle, that Rinaldo had been pursuing when the sight of Angelica had turned him to a nobler chase. And the horse knew more than its master, and, indeed, had been all the time drawing him on the track of the fleeing maiden. In vain Rinaldo called on Bardo to stay, and in vain tried to overtake his speedy flight. But whilst the knights had been immersed in battle, Angelica had traversed many a glade, and in her fearfulness of capture, in every sound she heard the breathing of Rinaldo, and in every glance she threw back, she caught a gleam of his armour. And she knew not that the breathing was only the rustle of the leaves, and the gleaming nothing but the glint of the sunshine. All that day she fled, and all the night, and the sun was high in the heaven, before her dread gave place to weariness. At length Angelica came to a spot steeped in such beautiful quietude that she loosed the reins and lighted on the ground, overcome with fatigue. The place was at the meeting of two rippling streams. All the banks were green with soft grass, and not far off she spied a natural bower, overgrown with roses and understrown with flowers. And in the forefront the stream made a glassy mirror, and at the back was a thick grove of ancient oaks, and within the shade deepened into blackness, save where through a break in the foliage just enough of the sun had penetrated in the early morning to warm into life a bank of flowering heaths. And here Angelica fell asleep soothed by the rustling of the oaks and the sweet scent of the heaths and the cooling shade. Not long had she slept when her slumber was broken by the sound of the trampling of a horse and the clang of arms, and peering through the leaves, 
she saw in the mirror of the stream a youthful knight, and the knight dismounted and loosed his steed and cast himself down beside the stream. He rested his head on his arm and looked on the water so intently and fell into a reverie so profound that he seemed a statue wrought by the hand of a sculptor and no living white. At last, thinking himself alone in the depth of the forest, he began to make a very pitiable lament to the rocks and the trees and the myriad ears of the earth and the air, which are always open to the true lover's complaints. And for the most part, his lamentation was a variant of a world-wide famous nuptial song. But the youthful lover interspersed his recitings with a rendering of his own particular griefs, and the burden of his dolefulness was Angelica. Now the name of this lover was Sacripant, and in dignity he was the king of Circassia, and of all her lovers he had been the most gentle and obedient. He had been sent by Angelica from the citadel of Albraca to bring up new allies and fresh military power, and after long labour had returned with his levies to find that Angelica had gone to France with Orlando. Speed as he might, he arrived only in time to discover that in the midst of the great battle Angelica had fled to the Greenwood, and he had incontinently followed after. Then he had lost himself in the forest ways, until good fortune had brought him unknowingly to her feet. As soon as Angelica had recognised the Knight of the Lamentations, she stepped fearlessly out of the shade of the bower, and stood in all her beauty before the astonished knight. And though her heart was cold as marble, she smiled very pleasantly, for well she knew his bravery and humbleness, and she looked on him as a most faithful champion and trusty guide. And she rewarded him with a counterfeit of love, and she kissed him as she had never done in Albraca, and then she told him the story of her perils and adventures until the Circassian began to think that at last his day and hour had arrived. But Angelica only thought of the safest means to reach a friendly port, to set sail for the east, and to leave forever the multitude of her suitors. And scarcely had Angelica given an account of her wanderings under the safe conduct of Orlando, and had informed King Sacripant that a like honourable duty was now to be assigned to himself, when again through the woodland echoed the clang of armour and the trampling of a horse. Sacripant quickly seized his helmet and lance and swiftly mounted his steed, and forth there came from the woodland another warrior, shining with the resplendency of white armour, and in his casque a snowy plume, and white also was his war-horse, and white all its furniture and trappings. Enraged with this intrusion, for the gentle Circassian had begun to be emboldened by the solitude of the woodland and the kindness of Angelica, Sacripant placed his lance in rest, and without further parley rushed on the stranger knight, who just as readily accepted the challenge, and set spurs to his horse. For in those days it was the custom of knights-errant to fight first, and to give or not give their reasons afterwards. Both riders, thanks to the soundness of their armour, survived the shock, but the steed of Sacripant was hurled to the ground, mortally wounded by the heavy frontlet of the white horse. 
the unknown knight deeming that no more honour was to be gained from the stricken foe, and for his own particular reasons having no desire to take captive the lady, turned swiftly aside and rode away through the forest. The fallen knight, in bitter shame to be so disgraced in the sight of the princess, was still more ashamed when he found that without her aid he could not disencumber himself from the dying horse. At last, with her help, he gained his feet and stood silent and downcast, and Angelica, who for all her disdain of love was in all else as kindly as the sunshine, comforted the woe-begone knight with playful excuses. Not his the fault, but his horse was wearied. Had the steeds been changed, so had been the battle. And well the stranger knew that foot to foot and man to man he would have been overcome. And to crown all, she vowed that he is conquered who first leaves the field. So kindly was Angelica that King Sacripant had almost persuaded himself that she really believed, in spite of his mishap, that he was the better knight, when from the woodland again sounded the footfall of a horse. And forth from the trees there came riding a man, garbed like a messenger, with horn and wallet at his side, and looking outworn with weariness. He saluted the pagan knight with due humility, and questioned him if he had seen a warrior in white armour, with white buckler and snowy plume, riding a white horse. And to him replied the Circassian, doing prompt penance for his shame. Surely he it was who but a little while agone stretched me on the plain, and just now has he ridden away. And fain would I know his name and heritage, that I may seek my revenge. And to him the messenger replied, with a fearful pleasure, craftily suppressed. Know, Sir Knight, that the fall you suffered was from a gallant virgin as renowned for her beauty as for her might in arms, and from beyond the bounds of the known world must you have come, if you know not the name of Bradamant. Thus he spake, and rode away on the track of his mistress, and the Circassian blushed hotly with this new disgrace and even the kindly Angelica thought the most fitting solace lay in silence. And in silence the dejected knight on the invitation of the princess mounted her palfrey, and placing her behind him sought to find a way out of the wilds of the forest. But they had not ridden far before they heard rushing towards them and crashing through the woods some mighty animal, and soon they came in sight and stopped suddenly and stood looking at them, a very stately horse, riderless, with trappings all of burnished gold. And at the first look Angelica cried out, Surely this is Bardo, come to our assistance, and fled from his hateful master, Rinaldo. And thereupon they both dismounted from the palfrey, and King Sacripant ran up to the riderless horse, and made to seize the reins. But the horse plunged violently, and refused the proffered hand and forced the knight to give way. Then, having put aside his presumed enemy, the noble steed with easy pace and friendly eyes advanced to Angelica, and made such demonstrations of affection as might a spaniel after long absence from its mistress. For in the siege of Albraca, when Rinaldo was bewitched with hatred of Angelica, and she was as desperately enamoured of him, being bewitched by the river of love, the horse Bardo took a notable part in the adventures, 
and in the chances of love and war he had been taken from Rinaldo and shut up in Albraca, and there had often fed at the hands of Angelica, and been much fondled for the love of his master. And indeed in her lovesickness she had secretly sent back the steed to Rinaldo, although he was then her bitter enemy, but in no way had she softened his hatred. And all that the horse remembered was that Angelica was his friend in his captivity, and he was delighted when she once more smoothed his ruffled mane and stroked his arching neck. Still as a lamb stood the fiery steed, and Sacripant quickly leapt into the saddle, and the horse, noting the approval of the princess, quietly answered to the reins. Angelica had scarcely mounted her palfrey when once again the clang of armour was heard approaching, and the well-hated Rinaldo came into view and Angelica grew pale with affright, and her look was troubled, and her voice faltered as she begged Sacripant to flee away as fast as possible. But the Circassian, who longed to undo the ill effect of his late defeat by Bradamant, protested that even if unarmed, he would fight Rinaldo in her defence, and he recalled the valiant deeds he had wrought for her sake in Albraca. Thus reminded of his former prowess, Angelica knew not what to reply, and the king spurred Bayardo to meet Rinaldo. And Rinaldo was bitterly enraged when he saw that another had taken his horse, and taken also Angelica. Base thief, he cried, base thief, restore my horse and give up the lady. And King Sacripant was enraged that he should be called a horse thief and asked to give up the princess and he returned words with greater scorn and greater wrath, and straightway, forgetting the courtesies of chivalry, attacked Rinaldo with all the seeming advantage of a mounted knight against a knight unhorsed. But Sacripant had fallen on an unlucky day. Bardo refused to aid in the attack on his old master, and made every effort to throw his rider. At last the angry king was forced to leap to the ground and attack Rinaldo on equal terms. Long they fought with the utmost fury, until Rinaldo, with a mighty blow, shattered the buckler of his enemy, so that it broke into shivers as if it had been ice instead of bone and steel. So fierce was the blow that the arm of Sacripant was benumbed. But when Angelica saw that Sacripant's shield was broken, she was stricken with fear, and she quickly turned her palfrey and made for a narrow, thorny passage through the thickest of the wood. She had not ridden far when she came to a pleasant valley that lay most quiet and peaceful in the sunshine, and coming towards her, as if to make more certain the peacefulness, she saw a hermit riding on a slow-paced ass. Long and white was the hermit's beard. His face was lean and furrowed, as if with prayers and fasting, and to the eyes of the affrighted princess he seemed the incarnation of piety and goodness. Man and ass alike bespoke the most trustful confidence. But at the sight of the beauty of Angelica, the pulse of the old man began to beat more quickly, though he kept back every sign of feeling, except such as befitted his sanctimony. Angelica, deceived like any simple maid, with the long beard and the slow-paced ass and all the other appearances of a holy life, asked the hermit if he would show her the way to the nearest port, and her hope was to sail away 
and never again even hear of Rinaldo. Now the hermit was in truth well versed in magic, and under his robe he carried a book, and by reading the book he could summon fiends and cast very potent spells. Scarcely had he opened the book when there appeared from the greenwood, as naturally as a falling leaf, a sprightly page, and without further instructions from the ancient man, wandered away as naturally as a leaf is blown by the wind. But the hermit had given him his commands in the secret language of magic, and the innocent-looking page in a moment had reached the enraged warriors, and having no fear for his own beautiful person, which was indeed only a semblance, he rushed between them, and on the instant told them a plausible story, which they very promptly accepted without a moment's doubt. Not a mile away, he said, I met a knight and a lady, and they were laughing and jeering, so I gathered, about your fruitless fighting, and the name of the knight was Orlando, and the lady had golden hair and black eyes. No sooner had he spoken than Rinaldo mounted Bardo and galloped away in fancied pursuit, leaving in his jealous hate King Sacripant without a word to his own devices, and having performed his task, and having sent Rinaldo far away from Angelica, the sprite vanished. The long-bearded hermit, for all his magic, was not able to make his ass trot fast enough to overtake Angelica, when, in accord with his directions, she had set out to find the nearest seaport. But although the magician was not able to hurry his own ass, by a fitting set of incantations he was enabled to put a wicked spirit into the palfrey of the princess. To do this, he had to descend into the depths of his cavern, and there read his book by an unholy light. But when done, the deed was very well done. Angelica had reached the seashore, and was riding close to the water, where the sands were most firm, when suddenly the fiend sent by the hermit took possession of the steed, and the animal, never before having been possessed of a devil, plunged violently into the water, and urged by the fiend swam seawards as fast as its limbs could move. In vain Angelica pulled at the reins and shouted words of encouragement. The animal could not hear the voice of his mistress above the whisperings of the fiend. Fortunately, the water kept very calm. The winds were hushed, and the waves fell, charmed, so says the poet, by the beauty of Angelica. But as the shore receded further away, and the great hills faded into clouds and grew smaller and smaller, the princess lost her courage, which was never of the heroic order, and began to weep and give herself up for dead. And then suddenly the horse made a quick turn and bore her safe to land. The sun was setting, and the shore was wild and desolate with jagged rocks and gloomy caves. Angelica leapt from the palfrey, which still possessed of the devil, rushed away into the hills. And Angelica stood on the barren shore, and saw the shades of night gathering in the east, and she looked up to the wide, pitiless expanse of the sky, and she seemed to herself as insignificant as a speck of sand. Immovable as a statue she stood, and weeping bitterly, bewailed her miserable fate. Her hair was hanging loose, her hands were clasped together, and in her utter loneliness she mingled her voice with the lapping waves. 
Ah, why was I saved from the sea? To what worse fate am I destined? Born to be queen and empress, I shall never more see even my native land. Accursed was the beauty which made me a wanderer over the earth, and linked my innocence with evil rumours. Through this wretched beauty, Argalia, my dearest brother, lost his life. My father and his city were destroyed by the same evil fate. Lost is all my wealth, gone are all my friends, and even my suitors make my name a byword of deceitful fickleness. And this is now the end of all my wanderings, and of all the wars and mischiefs wrought for my sake. All alone in a barren wilderness, I must die in misery. And as she stood wrapped in her wretchedness, as with a garment, down from a rocky hill from which he had watched her advent, descended the long-bearded hermit who had laid this plot to conquer Angelica for himself. As he came near, he put on the most saintly airs, and so holy did he seem, that Angelica did not know him for the hermit of the forest and the ass, and she began to tell him in rapid words the story which already he knew much better than she, and he began to soothe her with all the guile of a well-exercised hypocrite. But not for long could his seeming holiness keep in check his lustful passion. The hands raised for blessing came down in amorous touchings of cheek and neck. Then the greedy fingers began to press the throbbing breast, and at last he seized the bewildered maiden in his arms. Aroused to his evil meaning, Angelica struck with her hand the feeble old dotard and thrust him away. But then the wily magician drew from his scrip a little vial filled with mightily charmed juices of evil plants, and he deftly sprinkled a few drops into the eyes of Angelica, and immediately she fell down in a deep sleep and was at his mercy. But the limitations on the powers of magic intervened, and whether the old man had by chance fallen under his own spells, or whether he was simply overpowered by the weight of years and wickedness, certain it is that he fell down on the sand, also overcome by deep sleep. And what happened next can only be understood if the reader will first of all attend to another story. A little to the west of fabulous Ireland, there is, or used to be, an island called the Island of Sorrows, though its proper name was Ibuda, and the king of this island had incurred the wrath of Proteus, a king of the sea, for a reason which in these days of hurry it would take too long to explain. But the end of it was that the god of the sea and his attendant monsters ravaged that island, and the people in their despair sent to the nearest diviner, and they were told that the only way to assuage the wrath of the god was to make an offering of the most beautiful maiden they could find, and the hapless victim was to be tied naked to a rock close to the sea, and there wait until forth from the sea came a dreadful orc to devour her bodily. And the diviner further declared that if one offering did not suffice to check the ravages of the sea monsters, the people must offer up another maiden in the same manner, and this dreadful sacrifice was to go on day by day until the sea god was satisfied with the victim. And for so many years had this horrid custom prevailed that the land was wasted of its people, 
and the miserable islanders in armed bands were wont to search for a new sacrifice in distant seas if haply they might find one of beauty sufficient to satisfy the vengeful god now it happened that a crew of these rovers came to this desolate shore on which angelica and the hermit had fallen down insensible and when the seamen landed in search of wood and water they found to their amazement a maiden so beautiful that at last they imagined they would indeed satisfy the god of the sea and his vengeance with bands of rushes they bound angelica and carried her to their ship for they had it in their mind to offer up to a ravening orc this glorious beauty which had set aflame the hearts of kings and heroes and had filled the world with passion and kings and heroes were still searching for angelica when she was captured on this desolate shore by the sea robbers and hurried away for a dreadful sacrifice but as for angelica the men of ibuda were themselves so affected by her beauty that they kept her in safety for many days until they had completely exhausted their store of beautiful maidens at last however the day came when angelica must submit to this shameful and horrible death weeping themselves and yet unflinching the rough islanders made her ready for the sacrifice and they stripped off her adornments and bound her to the rock but in order to fulfil the designs of fate and to bring to the point of madness the griefs of orlando as will be told hereafter the islanders left to angelica one bracelet and at this time an evil dream which emanated from the peril of angelica came to orlando as he lay besieged in paris with charlemagne so strong was the influence of the vision that he rose from his bed in the middle of the night and regardless of military duties and fealty to his king passed out of the city gates and began those wide wanderings in search of angelica which ended finally in his madness as is narrated in its place but in the meantime orlando himself and the other lovers who would have rushed through fire and slaughter to the rescue were distant by many a hundred mile and knew not save by the feeling of unconquerable sadness that their lady was put to shame and most cruelly entreated tied to the rock angelica awaited with horror the oncoming of the orc and every wave seemed a sign of the uprising of the monster pitiably she thought of the shameful indignity put upon her who all her life had been caressed with the worship of love daughter of an emperor and in her own right an empress over the hearts of men and then the anger of shame gave way to the terror of death and her head drooped to faintness and she half closed her eyes in fear and sometimes she would strive to break the cruel bonds and then again would fall into hopeless despair and the stillness of the expectation of unavoidable horror suddenly through her tears when in her despair she had looked up to heaven in sheer weariness of watching the sea far off she saw a bird flying rapidly towards the island of sorrows and larger and larger grew the seeming bird and from bird grew to a winged horse and on its back a glorious youthful knight in full armour and even as she heard the flapping of the great wings and saw that the knight was circling down to the fatal rock to which she was bound sheer terror again conquered every other feeling for at last 
the waters of the sea were uplifted, and the head appeared of the monstrous orc, an enormous bulk looming up like a ship, with eyes and tusks as if it were of a boar, and for the rest shapeless in deformity. And instantly the knight made his flying steed hover above the scaly beast, and with his heavy lance he tried to find a vulnerable spot. But adamantine were the scales of the beast, and the lance slid off as from a flinty rock. The less the blows hurt the monster, so much the more was it enraged. It lashed the waves with its tail, and raised such a deluge of spray, that the knight feared that the wings of his courser would be drenched, so that it would fall into the sea. At last, being hopeless of slaying the monster and rescuing the maiden, the knight bethought him of a device which he disdained to use, except in the last extremity of danger. On his left arm he carried a wonderful shield, of which a wonderful history has been preserved, and is recorded in its place. And this shield was always covered with a thick silken veil, so thick that the hidden splendour could not pierce through, for the brightness of the shield was so terrible, that whoever saw it at once fell into a swoon, and remained senseless and immovable, as if smitten by a stroke from the sun. The splendour had been fastened on the shield by enchantment, and only by a stronger enchantment could its force be resisted. It chanced, as is also told in its place, that this same knight had in his possession a ring, and whoever wore this ring on the finger could withstand the power of any enchantment, however mighty and the knight, swiftly flying to the captive lady, put on her finger the ring, and telling her to be of good courage, again faced the monster, and drawing off the veil from the buckler, showered the dazzling splendour full in its eyes. And in an instant the hideous monster lay floating like a dead fish on the surface of the sea. The knight again tried with all his strength to pierce the scales and make a realty of the seeming death but all unavailing were the blows. And Angelica, fearful lest the orc should again awake, entreated the knight to set her free from her fetters. And the knight shattered the chains and released the maiden, and set her behind him on the winged horse. Soaring into the air, they soon left far away the island of sorrows and the floating monster. Now the name of this knight was Rogero, and, as already told, he was of all the Saracens the most valiant and renowned. He was the lover of Bradamant, the maiden warrior who overthrew Sacripant, and after many extraordinary adventures, he was even then on his way from the ends of the earth in search of his love. But as he sped through the air and felt the tresses of Angelica blowing about him, he forgot his Bradamant, and leaning back, kissed Angelica on the eyes and the lips and the snowy breast, and vowed he would make her his own for ever. Urged by his new love, Ruggiero turned his course away from Spain, whither he had been hastening to meet Bradamant, and sought the nearest land, which used to be called the Lesser Britain. Here was a great forest of oaks, ensconced in which lay a meadow watered by a clear stream, and shining with flowers. In this beautiful meadow the knight descended, and his first care was to fasten the winged steed to an oak by the reins. But Angelica, in spite of her gratitude for the rescue, 
was in no mind to pay her debt with love, and as she cast down her eyes in fear, she saw more narrowly the ring on her finger, and lo, it was her own ring, the enchanted ring which Argalia had brought on their first fatal journey, the ring that had later been stolen from her by the cunning Brunello. And the story of the ring is a long, long story, and for the time it is the virtue of the ring, and not the story that presses. This, then, was the famous ring that, put in the mouth, made the possessor invisible. Quickly, Angelica removed the ring from her hand to her mouth, although much she feared some empty dream was deceiving both her sight and touch. It was incredible that her long-lost ring, her dearly loved ring, should be restored as it were from the sky. But as soon as the night turned round, then she knew for a certainty that it was indeed her own dear ring. For the night looked past her on every side, and saw her not, and softly she smiled at her own imaginings, and quietly vanished into the wood. Rogero, too late, remembered the ring and its enchantment, and thought that the maiden knew, or had guessed its secret, and he called to her with promise on promise, winged horse and blazing shield, as well as the ring, she could have as willing gifts, if only she would again appear. He hoped every moment she would return, and he embraced the empty air trying to find her. But far away from the meadow and the lovelorn Ruggiero wandered Angelica. At last she found a spacious cavern where dwelt an aged herdsman, and in the neighbouring valleys tended a vast number of beautiful mares. Clad in her invisibility, Angelica fearlessly entered into the cavern and took what she needed of food and rest. She found also some humble garments, and in this peasant dress, at the coming on of night, she went out from the cave. Very different was her attire from the richest robes which the East could furnish, such as she had been wont to wear, but through the simple vesture the beauty of Angelica shone out as the moon behind a dark, broken cloud. Even in this garb the Indian queen excelled in beauty all the nymphs of the ancient poets. When she had left the cave she chose out one of the best of the mares, and utterly wearied by the dangers and pursuits she had undergone since she met the hermit, she resolved to find her way back to Cathay, protected only by her ring. She made indeed one attempt to secure an escort, for after many wanderings, unseen of any mortal, she came upon an enchanted palace. But the story of this palace is a story of stories, and in this place it can only be said that Atlante, the magician who had brought up Ruggiero, and who loved him more than his own son, had again got him into his power. When Ruggiero found that Angelica had made her escape by the aid of the ring, and that she paid no heed to his cries and vows, he had gone back disconsolate to mount his flying horse. But, to his dismay, that too had escaped, and though he knew it not, had flown back to his old master, Atlante. The flying horse was a cross between a griffin and a mare, the forepart was like a griffin, with beak, talons, and wings, the hinder part in every way like a horse. Even in those days it was a very uncommon animal, being a product of nature, and not in any way due to magic. 
according to the greatest travellers it was only found in a mountainous region far away in the north when atlante first got possession of the hippogriffin for so was the creature named from its parentage he had taken great trouble with its training he had not only made it answer to rein and spur but even to his will when only expressed in thought if any one not knowing the secret of its guidance happened to mount the flying horse he was carried wherever atlante wished ruggiero had learnt this to his cost when he was carried away against his will into alcina's island of pleasure although after he had escaped he had been taught the way to control the animal but the delights of alcina's island and the adventures of ruggiero in those parts must be passed over for the present it is enough to know that whilst ruggiero was lamenting the loss of angelica the horse broke the reins and returned to atlante thereafter the magician who well knew the heart of his dear fosterling ruggiero had beguiled him by a semblance of bradamant being carried off by a giant to follow her into the enchanted palace which he had reared for that very purpose and by means of various devices atlante had brought into his enchanted palace many of the chiefest of the lords and ladies of that day orlando had been beguiled to follow the likeness of angelica and the others had been deluded by other semblances of the persons or the things they most desired and the peculiarity of the enchantment was that by a magical perversion of the vision no one recognised the others and all were roaming up and down the vast palace in search of the semblances by which they had been there enticed orlando by the false image of angelica and ruggiero by that of bradamant and so on of the rest each led captive by the fitting semblance and not one knowing the other through the gate of the enchanted palace passed the princess angelica unseen even by the wizard atlante so great was the power of the ring and when she found there orlando and sacripant she stood long in doubt which of the knights she should choose to give her safe guidance back to her native country and how she chose one of the two and how when she made herself visible ferrau who also was amongst the enchanted ones pressed his own claims and how in the end she left the three lamenting all these things are told in another story and again angelica went on her way through the forest towards the sea and freedom and she determined never more to seek the aid of any knight but to go alone back to her country aided only by the power of the ring but on the way she met with the fate that had been destined from the beginning and it was so strange that had it been foretold it would have gained credence from none least of all from angelica herself but here again the story of the fate of angelica is dependent from another and this other story begins with a mighty battle the most bloody save one of all the battles between the christians and the saracens end of chapter 5